I think he was probably the best wielder of words in the English language this century. And I think, in a way, because he was that, he was also the deepest questioner of language. I mean, in a way, by extending the boundaries of language, he finally had to come to the limits. And I think nobody's more aware of them than Joyce. I think myself, it actually has to do with his Irish background to begin with, uh, in the sense that he wrote in one of his earlier books, uh, The Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man, uh, that the English language was not the same for an Irishman as for an Englishman, that it was, in a sense, an alien medium. And the young Stephen Dedalus thinks, as he's looking at the Englishman who teaches him, how different the words sound on his lips and on mine. He was a very revolutionary writer indeed. Now, one of the ways in which he was revolutionary was in his um, total ability to dispense with plot in the ordinary sense. Ulysses is a great unplotted novel. There is no, uh, with the possible extension of exception of Tristram Shandy, there is no other great unplotted novel in the language, even as yet, uh, unless we count in Beckett's novels or novels which have a different kind of construction of Flannel Browns and Swim Two Guards and that. They are still very rare. Um, he was also uh, a great revolutionary writer in the sense that he begat or created the first great heroic anti-hero in literature. All the other anti-heroes were anti-heroes, pure and simple, so to speak. But before Joyce's long book is over, and having accompanied Bloom through this day, and having dwelt with him in intimacies of body and spirit, such as few characters in fiction have ever been subjected to, our respect for him has grown, not diminished. And we do, in the end, by whatever process this miracle is brought about, regard him as a genuinely heroic, albeit unheroic, figure. He made his living on the continent mainly as a teacher of English. And he must have heard sentences breaking down the dot, dot, dot sentence all day in classrooms or in studies where he was tutoring his, his students. And a great number of the sentences he writes in his early works as well as in Ulysses are actually dot, dot, dots, sentences that break down. And I think in a way what Joyce really was trying to pr- explore finally was the point where language actually does that, where it breaks down. You know, if you want to talk about Joyce's influence on people who followed, I think you've got to see him in terms of Uh, an influence almost of silences. Uh, People say that when Beckett and Joyce went into a room together when Beckett visited the old hero, they just exchanged silences. And I think it almost go back to that, that feeling that perhaps all language is an alien medium, and particularly English, an alien medium for an Irishman. Of course, there's lots and lots of words which one can't expect to know, words derived from obscure foreign languages, um, even to an even greater extent, unusual English words. One tries one's best with dictionaries and uh, one acquires some of the information if one does it on one's own. But the main method by which one discovers things, I think, is simply seeing English overtones, which come basically as a result of repetitive reading. Finnegan's Wake, if you like, consists of slow jokes. They are sometimes very funny, but you have to read them over and over and over again. Uh, over a quite long uh, space of time before they really strike you. It's very hard to explain that. I mean, quite often one can understand all the elements in a certain phrase or sentence 
and one still doesn't see it as a coherent joke. And then suddenly one day one reads it and uh, starts laughing. Mm. That's, to my mind, what the book is supposed to do. That is the, the basis, I think, of the real aesthetic sensation which Finnegan's Wake conveys. Well, there are certain themes which recur in his fiction. Uh, the relationship of the sexes being a principal one, another one being the degree of isolation of the artist, at once, I suppose, separating himself from Ireland and at the same time circling back to look in Ireland's window. And then there is a gradual attack upon the English language as if that had somehow proved to be inadequate for him. We know that when he was working on Ulysses, he complained that um, the language was not adequate for him. For example, the word battlefield, he said, uh, did not describe a battlefield after the battle had occurred. To describe that, you would have to say a blood field. Uh, but in Finnegan's Wake, he obviously went even further than that and described it as a bloodle filth. It was no longer even a field. You see, it was filth, and the blood had somehow got so confused that one called it bloodle rather than blood. Um, uh, I believe that um, as Joyce proceeded, he did begin to uh, feel that his essential concern was with language itself. And I think that in Finnegan's Wake, uh, for the first time, he was able to express something of his attitude towards language. There are many aspects of that, but besides the verbicidal tendency, the tendency to, to break down individual words, uh, there is also the tendency to recombine them. There's a growing complexity in Joyce's work, from Dubliners and the portrait of the artist of his early period to Ulysses and Finnegan's Wake, the most enigmatic work of all. Roland McHugh. It does tend to produce the same effect on the reader as Ulysses does. But, um, of course, it takes much longer before the effect begins to, t begins to take place. So, in terms of simple economics, one should begin by reading Ulysses, and one should turn to Finnegan's Wake when Ulysses is not producing a sufficiently strong effect anymore. Both books are very positive, very uplifting, and uh, very comical. As far as the earlier works of Joyce are concerned, um, I find that A Portrait of the Artist, although it has some fine style, some fine choice of words, fine literary cadences, is on the whole mostly interesting as um, information which can be used to make one appreciate Ulysses better. Dubliners, on the other hand, I find rather negative. All of the stories seem to end with a come down. And... Um, the general effect of the book I find rather depressing. It's um, astonishing that in the jump from Dubliners to A Portrait of the Artist, Joyce's ability as a writer should have improved so vastly. To me, it seems that um, The Portrait is a bore. Ulysses is that forbidden thing, a clever book, and Finnegan's Wake is just, just embarrassing to my mind. But there's one great achievement, which is Dubliners. The Dead is, is a most magnificent story. One can't speak highly enough about The Dead. A beautiful, beautiful story. And Dublin, as I said, is the, is the work of an artist. Joyce was a genius of a particular kind, uh, but he was not an artist, to my mind, in the great European sense. For instance, there's nothing in him of the grandeur of Racine. There's nothing of the agony that you associate with Rambo or Hölderlin. But he was, he was, to use his own word, a great 
artificer. He was a great inventor. But I think even at that level, there was failure. There was a sense that the wings weren't holding. I think he was haunted by the smell of, of wax and the, the little voice saying, Pater, and the crash into the sea. Talking of the earlier views of Ulysses, when some of them got their teeth into the Homeric parallel, you know, and Stuart Gilbert and all these people, he said, I wish to God more of them had said it was a funny book. Uh, and this is what he thought of it as, naturally a funny book, and I think he's right. It's, it, I think it's a great comic masterpiece, uh, if anything. Uh, the, the only other thing I remember about his reaction to it, he didn't react very much to criticism, you know. Uh, I do remember that he was very puzzled uh, during the 30s when the pink movement was on in England, when you had to be uh, politically engaged to be taken seriously at all, you see, as a writer. Where somebody told him that in a London literary paper of no much distinction, he had been accused of lacking an interest in the proletariat, you see. And this puzzled him entirely. He couldn't make out what this meant because he said, nobody in my, in my books ha has a penny, <laughs> you know, um, which is very true. Uh, I think he... He didn't have much interest in contemporary writers. You know, naturally, his eyesight would account for that. He had to save it for reading Tom's Directory and the, and the Irish papers, of course. So uh, in the literary world, he, he certainly admired immensely, of course, Yeats. Uh, he praised uh, Dujarda simply because he's, he took the, the uh, technique of the monologue anterior from him. He was friend, very friendly with uh, Corey Collum and James Stevens. Uh, but apart from that, his, his interest in contemporary writers was not strong. I have an impression that of all his works, he had a peculiar affection for Dubliners. And this doesn't surprise me at all, because I think the very essence of what he's about is in Dubliners, really, you know, more than in the portrait. The word was Joyce's oyster, Niall Montgomery once wrote. He took all he wanted from the philosophers, raped their cruel Circe language, put her to work digging etymological roots and died laughing. But it was a serious business too. With great humility he compared uh, Finnegan's Wake to, to that, that deadly technicolour projection of the Vulgate, the, the Book of Kells. And also he said about his own work, the thought is always simple. What was he trying to do? I think that he, he lacked passion. He knew nothing about women and his education was faulty. He lacked passion and without passion one is not an artist. Joyce was a man of enormous technique, but to my mind he was more an artisan than an artist. It's a very harsh thing to say, I know. And on this question of, of women, being the age I am, I, I knew the Edwardian men as old men. And my impression is it was very much a man's town and that the men spent a lot of time down the town drinking so that... Certainly there were fellows whom Joyce knew who were married to women. Some of them even had women as their mothers, but these were the Uncle Toms. This was apartheid. It was not a woman's world at all. And I think you can see that when you look at Molly Bloom. Molly Bloom is a great invention, certainly, but an invention of what? Because if you, if you put Molly Bloom and compare her with the great women of European literature, like Madame Arnoux or people like that, Emma Bovary... No, I don't mean... I don't mean uh, Nora Helmer... I don't mean General Gabler's mad daughter, but compare it with the great women of European literature, and what emerges? Molly Bloom is a man, a pantomime dame, to my mind. <laughs> These are probably wrong things to say, but what I think. You see, he thought 
Arthur Power recalling how Joyce looked on Ulysses. And if Ulysses launched Ireland on the international literary scene, it was also to launch a long line of books of criticism. Stuart Gilbert's study of Ulysses appeared in 1930. His widow, Moon Gilbert, recalls that pioneering critical work. Yes, he wrote uh, Jim Joyce's Ulysses. And uh, that is a book which really opened uh, the idea of the book to many, many people because it was so... They were so disconcerted. It seemed so... Of course, when he started writing Ulysses, Joyce helped him a bit because some places were uh, rather curious. It was the first time people wrote really a book of that kind. And uh, many people could not even understand the idea of the book. And some were shocked, of course, by some passages of it. And uh, in those conditions, my uh, husband's book came like an opening. We received quantities of letters from America, from England, from all places. I have quantities of letters of people who said, it's marvelous, thanks to you, we can understand it. Now we know what Ulysses means, we know what it is. What I think he did, that you can say other writers like Flann O'Brien and Beckett did after him, was actually to rehabilitate the cliché to recapture literature from the people who tried to create beautiful sounds and shapes and to say, look, maybe clichés are the court poems of democracy. Maybe Emerson was right. Maybe every word was once a poem and that clichés are simply poems that have gone a bit stale by overuse. And I think in someone like Flann O'Brien, who actually caresses lovingly many, many Dublin clichés, you are getting a man who is following on a, a path blazed by Joyce, which is basically an attempt to rehabilitate the cliché. There's a great... Uh, example in one of Flann O'Brien's essays where he says how it's obvious that Joyce wasn't just a real Dubliner but had a very, very good musical ear where he says about Bloom coming out of a bar and a little newsboy runs up to him and says, hey mister, your fly's open mister and the second mister is the obvious proof that, you know, the man had a good ear this is something no academic can detect but anyone who uh, just listens to the sounds of the streets would immediately see that it could be produced only by a genius well, I don't think it has to do so much with the language used as with uh, an encompassing vision of life. I think uh, language, uh, while not exactly a secondary matter, is uh, secondary to this, at least, that it is uh, Joyce's façon de voir, his way of seeing, that is so great. Um, and the language that he uses serves his purpose. I think the language uh, is uh, interesting and important. In, up to Ulysses in his exploration of the banal, as, as much as anything else. Um, it isn't quite true to say his exploration of the cliché. In fact, there are very few clichés. It is banalities uh, which have a strange, uh, ironic power or humorous power or 
extensive power. They, they seem to extend meaning rather than to constrict it in his hands that uh, do the trick for him. Now, in Finnegan's Wake, I think there is a, an enormous extension of language, but not principally into the extension given to it by the punning aspects of it. It's the extension given uh, to it by the musical aspects of it that counts. Uh, a long time ago, I had a conversation with T.S. Eliot about this, and um, he said he thought that Finnegan's Wake would always be read for its music. And I do find among uh, young poets and others um, that it is those who are most open to music who get most out of Finnegan's Wake. It is those with the keenest interest or, or musical sense, interest in music or musical sense, who get most out of it. He had a great respect for Aristotle, at least for the Aristotelian system of logic, and uh, he called him the Staggerite because he came from that island. And uh, I have said somewhere that he wished to imitate the Staggerite as an authority on everything, uh, a kind of, and to, to bring forth his knowledge in a new creation, which would be a kind of new world created by Joyce himself, in which he was the centre and which had no. Uh, terminal uh, points outside. In other words, it took up the whole of the universe, or would take it up if he managed to work it like that. And I think that's what Finnegan's Wake purports to be. It's a circular book. The book ends with the de the definite article, T-H-E, and there's no full stop after it. And it starts with the word river run with a small case R. So that the of the end of the last chapter qualifies River Run at the beginning of the first. That's why I call it a circular book. Do you think that he saw Finnegan's Wake as the, the crowning glory, if you like? He did, and uh, uh, he was very disappointed. Uh, it came out in the summer of 1939, and by the time it was on sale to any extent, there was another Joyce taking up all the radios of the world. Here are the Reichsenders, Hamburg and Bremen. It was Lord Ha Ha that was having the attention of the world instead of James Joyce. So uh, uh, his wife, long after, for years after he died, complained that so little notice was being taken of Finnegan's Wake because she knew that in Ulysses he had become one of the greatest writers in the world, but she expected from what he had been saying that when Finnegan's Wake was finished, he would beat even that fellow Shakespeare, that London writer. When he compares his work to the, the work of the medieval illuminators, he's conscious of himself, I think, as a very great uh, artisan. But there's very little... Uh, I mean, one can sort of say that in, when you're talking about Bloom, that there's passion in the portrayal of Bloom, certainly there's gentleness and, and tenderness and there's, there's a tremendous compassion there. But I can't see the great burning passion that makes the great artist. I don't think he was a great artist. I think that's what he realised, and I think that Finnegan's Wake is, is the proof of it. Some people say he was almost, you know, so great that no-one has yet assimilated him. I think probably the main influence was to deepen everybody's sense of unease about language um, and 
to make people aware how little actually gets expressed in a working day. I mean, the main things in Ulysses are never expressed. The fact that Bloom forgives his wife, but then goes home and forgets to tell her and ends up snoring in the bed beside her. And that whole final soliloquy with Molly Bloom, which everyone sees as such an affirmative moment, to me seems like the ultimate negative comment on the good old Irish silent marriage. And again, it's about silence. I think that's a big influence on lots and lots of writers, particularly people like not just Beckett, but Broch and Borges even, and uh, many, many American writers who began to explore silences and the bits that don't get said and can't be said. I mean, if you start saying that, you can argue that people like Pinter are the logical outcome of Joyce's findings. I think that one of the most respectable plays, in, uh, the most genteel plays that one could possibly read is, is Exiles. Everything is stuffy, like uh, front room parlours. Uh, there's a character in it even who has a, a pump with which he uh, sprays the, the, the place with perfume. Well, to remove what, I don't know. But uh, all that is uh, certainly uh, characteristic of Joyce, but it's only superficial. If you get deeper into exiles, you find all sorts of uh, chasms of uh, queer... Uh, queerly imagined living, um, plying for uh, the possession of the other man's wife, uh, working uh, on another man's passion with, for jealousy and so on. What are your thoughts on his poetry? I don't think much of it. His early poetry was uh, very artificial, uh, tending to imitate the Elizabethan uh, lyric, uh, lyric, lyric writers and uh, his later poetry, there's not much of it, but uh, he was capable of uh, quite good lines like I hear an army charging. That uh, poem is rather well done, but it, it too is rather artificial. He began with a rather old-fashioned idea of poetry that poetry was about the elevated or the intense moment. In other words, with the old lyrical idea of poetry that most people have, that poetry is about extraordinarily vivid or intense or lyrical moments. Um, he discovered that his business as a writer was to include quite other sorts of moments um, which may have their... Uh, strange poetry, but which are not lyrical in the old sense... Um, to include uh, an awful lot of human experience that is in fact sordid or uh, exposes the meanest side of us. Now, he was unable to include this in poetry. Uh, he simply began too early as a poet and he didn't uh, realise fully what was going on in poetry. He never discovered that you could include these meannesses and sordidities of spirit in, in poetry as Eliot was to include them in poetry. So he included them in prose. But at the same time, he did something remarkable. He brought to prose something of the texture and intensity of poetry. Joyce's letters to his wife Nora have attracted a good deal of attention, mainly because of their frankness. They show him prepared to present himself and all his fantasies to another person. His biographer, Richard Ellman. Uh, I find this uh, uh, a very impressive aspect of Joyce's work. It's quite unlike uh, 
what one finds in other writers of his period. I think it's way beyond uh, his period in that. It's, it would be very common now, I think, for people to express themselves with uh, equal openness. But in a way, it's Joyce who helps us to do that because of his example. It would be interesting to compare the way in which he deals with sexual matters in his letters and the way in which he deals with them in his books. I think one can find that uh, the letters are raw and deliberately uh, uncontrolled in their expression of sexual feeling. But Molly Bloom's soliloquy, which at first was considered to be so obscene, is actually an extremely controlled statement of sexual feeling, even though the sexual feeling is still very present in it. But one would one would see that uh, that Joyce could have been much more uh, unconventional uh, in that chapter if uh, his whole object had been merely in unconventionality. As I see it, uh, Molly Bloom's uh, soliloquy and her sexual feelings are all subsumed in the larger motivation of the work, so that he naturally would not express things in so uh, immediate and um, unformed a way as he does in his letters to Nora. So I think the letters to his wife do show um, how passionate Joyce could be, uh, how uncivilized uh, he could be, uh, and yet their whole object, I suppose, is to present his love for her. And the love seems to me to, to come through uh, with all the rawness of expression. I think he wants to uh, love her uh, in a way which uh, people have not uh, been able to express before, uh, not only uh, beyond good and evil, but beyond the usual forms of uh, civilized life question of the letters, uh, does anything more uh, of himself come out in the letters than he intended to come out? Uh, you see, self-revelation is all very well. All artists deal in self-revelation, but they deal in self-revelation through the medium of art, and they deal in forms of self-revelation which are transformed and um, annealed by art. And uh, by publishing these letters, we're not at all sure whether Joyce ever intended them for publication, and we are adding something uh, to the general picture which he, he did not uh, include within the Ivra himself. Now, it's all very well to say everything should come out in the wash, and of course uh, nothing in future can be hidden from a biographer, uh, but on the other hand, uh, what purpose is served? And uh, the whole business about the letters seems to me, I must say, to have its very, very dubious aspects. Uh, the circumstances of their, of their obtainment uh, by Columbia in the first place, uh, the circumstances of their publication, uh, the use that has been made of them. As to Joyce's influence, there's substantial agreement that he did influence writers who came after him. What is a matter of dispute is the extent of that influence. Joyce's influence is quite clearly enormous. Um, but that doesn't necessarily... That is not necessarily a reflection of the quality of work. 
I mean, if you, if you, if you, it was easy enough to talk about influence in the old days when you had a stable culture, and a man could admire himself for perceiving in Mozart the traces of Haydn or in Beethoven the traces of Mozart. But when that world collapsed and the great artists began to arise at the end of the 19th century who were iconoclastic and inventive artists, their influence should have been to make other artists iconoclastic and inventive, but there are never more than about three or four inventive fellows. And so you got a whole spawning through the century of little Aaron Copeland Stravinsky's and little Picasso's and little Minnie Joyce's, little Minnie Mouse Joyce's. I don't, that's what influence is. But certainly his position is very great, and certainly there are fellows who would never have written as they do today if it hadn't been for Joyce. But what does that prove? An awful lot of nonsense is talked about his influence, you know. I think he's had very little influence. I think he's had extraordinarily little influence on the novel, uh, which goes its way regardless. Uh, the novel, as she is written, is the same old novel. It's a novel of circumstance, of plot, of dramatic event, of dramatic causation. Uh, so he's, <laughs> in that sense, he's had very little influence on it. Um, I think he, he, he can be seen to have had some influence on both Beckett and Flann O'Brien, but I think less influence on either of them than uh, one would think. They, they owe their originality to other things and things in themselves um, and to their Irishness, largely, but not to their Joycean-ness. Uh, all in all, his influence has been surprisingly small. There was a time when an awful lot was talked about Joyce's influence and what he had done to the contemporary novel. In fact, he did very little to the contemporary novel. The obvious influences, apart from the one on Beckett, would perhaps be on Flann O'Brien. And the way O'Brien learned from Joyce, that whole thing of tricking around with different styles, juxtaposing five or six different styles in a single book, like he does in At Swim Two Birds. So you have a cowboy tale, a Celtic legend, a very, very realistic Flaubertian kind of 19th century uh, narrative, and so on. And the ultimate effect, of course, of juxtaposing all the styles is to show how meaningless any style actually is, what a vanity the whole thing is. Beckett actually compared uh, writing style once uh, with a bow tie uh, put on over a throat cancer. And again, there's that kind of despondency about language and the belief that style ultimately is just a vanity, which I think all goes back to Joyce's tricking around with different styles, say in the 14th chapter of Ulysses, where he does exactly the same. And there's almost an Irish tradition there of just mocking the very language they've mastered and showing just how little it can actually say in the end. You know, the effect of putting all the styles together is ultimately to reduce them all to a shambles and to say no one is better than any other at getting at reality. Language itself is actually a parody of the world we try to describe. And he does seem to have had an influence on quite a number of writers in Irish. Yes, I think it's underestimated. Um, like recently, I feel I, I've been writing a little about his influence on Joseph Macrina. Now, this is obviously... Uh, a debatable point, but I'm convinced that the portrait of the artist as a young man and some of its major themes and methods can be found in McCree and his own book, Mavalach Fein, uh, sometimes overtly, sometimes covertly. But the whole, the overriding image of the way or the roadway is the image with which Joyce begins a portrait. Uh, the whole idea of Mavalach Fein is the idea that Joyce articulates in the portrait that the shortest way to Tara is via Hollyhead. And the bulk of Mavalach Fane, or the central portion which causes such controversy, is actually about a man going via Hollyhead into Wales in some obscure way, trying to come to terms with his Celtic heritage by almost turning his back on it. And I do feel there is very big influence there. I wouldn't say Macrina was very influenced by the literary techniques of Joyce, although you can find some of them, like the kind of cultivation of an ironic deflation, uh, 
to break down romantic posturing, just as you get in the early works of Joyce, like the portrait. But I think there's a very definite influence there. And I mean, well, Martin O'Kine confessed in public that someone had once on a city bus called him a Joycean smutmonger. So, I mean, <laughs> there is no need to establish the influence there. On the most obvious level, Joyce talks about things which had never been discussed before in literature, such as defecation, masturbation, menstruation, and the like. And one is grateful to him for bringing these subjects uh, uh, into the light. But I suppose that um, his ultimate uh, importance must lie in the combination of this kind of uh, naturalistic honesty um, with um, the most uh, elaborate uh, artistic techniques so that there is no question that uh, he is as sophisticated as any writer who's ever written in English or any other language. Um, but all of these things in the service, as I see it, of some kind of statement of the essential togetherness of um, the world, uh, the ultimate gregariousness of people, and the presence, uh, in one way or another, of a kind of elective affinity, which uh, if Joyce had been sentimental, he would have called love. Uh, as it is, he prefers to speak of it as the word known to all men, and never to say exactly what word that is. It does seem to me that our ultimate uh, affection for Joyce uh, is involved with his ultimate affection for us, that he is essentially a writer uh, who sees uh, the human condition as at once uh, pitiable and exalting. And the, the writer has to bring out both the exaltation and the pity. Who killed James Joyce, said the poet Patrick Avener, reminding us that we're all involved to some degree in what's become known as the Joyce industry. That there should be a Joyce industry is understandable. Anthony Cronin. Joyce is obviously ideal from the point of view of the sort of academics who go in for him. He's capable of almost infinite explication. And the great nightmare of the academic, the lecturer, or thesis writer, is that he won't have enough to say, that he'll dry up. Um, it, uh, the miracle is, really, that it hasn't done him much damage. Most of the people who get on English courses, or even into the school books, are damaged by it. Uh, they lose readers rather than gain them. If, some, if you have to study somebody for a text as a text, you're not likely to read them for pleasure ever again. Um, and uh, it's inclined to turn, of course, the young against you. Uh, so all those who are uh, on university courses ought to watch out for themselves. But uh, in Joyce's case, it doesn't seem to have damaged him. He survives, he has his readers who are not affected by it, and that's the great thing. Um, what is comic about it, and really, no more than comic, I suppose, in a way, though I did feel more strongly about it once, are its uh, excesses, uh, the... Uh, attempt to reduce the whole of Ulysses, for example, to hieroglyph and symbol um, was an attempt to denature the book, in fact. And uh, what they did was they turned it into a sort of monstrous, enchanted fairyland where everything was something else. Uh, some of these interpretations were very comic. Um, 
one eminent exegetist uh, saw that the, the cup of cocoa that uh, Bloom and Stephen uh, take uh, together in Eccles Street uh, late at night as the sacrifice of the Mass, because it's said in the book that cocoa is mass-produced. Another eminent exegetist, apparently unaware of his colleague's interpretation, saw the coffee uh, that Stephen refused uh, in the cabman's shelter as uh, the blood of Christ. <laughs> and uh, he said that although Stephen had an awful lot of um, social sins on his conscience, uh, the whole catalogue of agambite of inwit, he is absolved from them by refusing to take communion. Actually, he seems to have missed out the fact that uh, Stephen does take a sip of the offending beverage before they leave the cabman's shelter. But uh, whether it's the cocoa or the coffee, as I say, which is the blood of Christ, won't trouble the right kind of reader. <laughs> of course, Joycean guides aren't exclusively of the exegetical kind. Pauline Bracken. For example, the Germans now, they will have done their homework well and they'll have looked up bus timetables and they'll know how they can get to Eccles Street without strain or undue expense. When I'm taking them down Grafton Street during their city sightseeing tour, they'll be watching out for Davy Burns and they'll probably spot it before I've had time to point it out. During their free time in the city, they'll certainly pay a visit and there they'll sit with a glass of harp in one hand and translated editions in the other, allowing Joycean influences to seep through their pores. The French now, on the other hand, they're a bit different. They should have a more applied interest since it was they who played host to Joyce and provided him with the publisher. But they're more fickle and they're apt to get a little distray between Davy Burns and Brown Thomas, where they've been told that pure wool sweaters are available at interesting prices. But it's the Japanese who pose a problem for a guide, in that their own guides tend to chat on in the vernacular, punctu punctuating the set pieces with proper names. And of course this leaves the local guide very much in the dark as to how much or what the group is absorbing in the way of information. The invasion is only about to begin, really, but um, it does seem to me that the whole thing has become a gigantic racket and there would be a lot less solemn talk about Joyce if so many men like me didn't depend for their livelihood on maintaining the conversation. Um, some of the best criticism, of course, uh, of Joyce, as well as the worst, has been written by Americans, uh, very little, funnily enough, by Irish people. And while one would like to call a halt to the industry, it's a great pity that a couple of useful essays haven't yet been written in recent times uh, on Joyce by Irish people. There are one or two. There's a very good one by Anthony Cronin uh, in his book. But very little of real substance has been written on Joyce uh, by Irish critics. He was a very anti-literary person. He wasn't just anti-critic or anti-academic. Uh, he was deeply suspicious of literature. And that's why I, uh, that's why I mentioned his, earlier his suspicion of language. I mean, there's a famous anecdote said about how people were always trying to bring him and Marcel Proust together, and they couldn't because Proust uh, slept all day and Joyce, like a good Irish bourgeois, slept most of the night. And when they finally got them together, uh, Joyce annoyed his friends and admirers and delighted Proust by spending the whole evening talking to him about the qualities of dark chocolate truffles. And that, in a sense, I mean, this is Joyce's ultimate comment, I think, on the intellectual suits who surrounded him and tried to lionise him and would try and concoct the critical industry from which we're still trying to escape.